This week on Happy, Sad, Confused, David Harbour on Stranger Things, Hellboy, and being an overnight sensation after the age of 40. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. I'm also an overnight sensation after the age of 40, aren't I? Are you? (laughs) Okay, no, no. The sensation part hasn't happened yet. I am over 40, though. (laughs) I was going to say, did something hit? (laughs) No. Still the same old... (laughs) Loki'd past 7 million views. (laughs) Hey. Don't you be knocking my Loki. I'll never knock Loki. That's our bread and butter here. <laughs> That's right. Thor Ragnarok around the corner, guys. Can't wait. Um, hey, guys. I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to my podcast. That's Sammy, of course. This is the introduction to uh, a very cool episode, an interview with Mr. David Harbour. You, of course, know David Harbour from from his amazing role on uh, Stranger Things, his mm-hmm. Emmy-nominated role. Yeah, that's right. We're rooting for uh, David there. He's, he's up for the Emmy in a couple weeks. Is he- Gonna give his to Winona if he wins. We so we talked. I asked him like what he had sp- planned for the speech because he gave that amazing speech at the set. Yeah, where Winona then became an, an Which, amazing meme, iconic. So <laughs> um, yes, he does have big plans for his speech. He told me. Whoa, he's so, gotta win. I know. We're now more incentives to root for him. And he did say that if he doesn't win, he'll come back and he'll do the speech here. Oh my god! So there you go. So I kind of hope he doesn't. <laughs> that we can use exclusive David Harbour's <laughs> Emmy speech. Um, but uh, I, I really love talking to him. I, I you know, I, we we talked. I think for the first time at Comic Con, oh, you god. were there. What? You guys really just fell in love. I did kind of fall it was for him. Like, you guys were like halfway through the interview, both were like making googly eyes and he's, like the same references. He's a New Yorker, he's yeah. like my age. He's very talented, yeah. and I'm not. So we have yes. a lot in common. Yeah. Um, I watched it happen. There were sparks flying. There were sparks. There were more sparks in this conversation too. He's he's like, he's a he's a he's a true actor capital a actor like he's done so much he's done so much great theater um he's been that guy that you recognize from a thousand things if you look at his imdb you'll be like oh yeah i've seen him in 12 different things and uh and now in the last you know year plus thanks to stranger things um he's kind of elevated his status and 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 getting more opportunities i mean he had a good career going anyway but now he's just kind of uh, a little bit more visible so uh very happy for him we talk a lot about stranger things of course uh our mutual love everybody's love Winona Ryder. We talk yeah, about her. Very special. Um, and we talk about a lot about Hellboy too and um, and just everything that's going on with him. So it was a really cool conversation. I think you as a theater Oh, I'm very excited. Snob, guru, whatever you want to call He's yourself. He's acceptable. Yeah. Um, He's an acceptable theater actor. I think you'll appreciate this conversation and I think all of you will as well. So Did you talk about Hellboy the musical? Is there a Hellboy musical? No. <laughs> I wouldn't put it Maybe, past. Maybe, yeah. I never I don't know if he can sing actually. He's done a lot of plays, but he I don't think do he's like a musical. He could do like the spoken word sort of. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Maybe just Rex good, Harrison. Let's yeah. start with the movie first. Oh, yeah. I guess we'll see how that goes. Okay. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. He's off to Bulgaria soon to do that. He may or may not have shown me what he's going to look like as Hellboy. Sorry, guys, but it looks cool. <laughs> Is it just like those like glasses with the attached mustache? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> like, it's a very yeah. low rank. It's You're basically... so stupid that you literally thought it was his Hellboy costume. <laughs> Wait, He's what? Like, yeah. That's it, really? <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, a lot, a lot of fun stuff in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, what else to say, Sammy? We had what, what was the sketch we just put up that uh... Aubrey and Lizzie? Oh, that's right, Aubrey and Lizzie. I knew we had done something silly recently. Uh, for those that haven't checked mm-hmm. it out, our latest after hour sketch is up on the World Wide Web. Uh, go to MTV's Facebook. page. 
page or MTV's YouTube page. And it's um, a fun thing I did with Aubrey Plaza and Lizzie Olson. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth Olson, people know her everybody as. Knows, everybody knows to call her Lizzie. I know. It's not just close personal friends. I do just want to say that yeah. uh, I heard her mention Ashley at one point, which yes. I assume is Ashley Olson. So I'm very excited. For everyone else of my generation, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Exclusive. Lizzie acknowledges her sister. She one has, of her sisters. Yeah, just one. Not, doesn't talk about Mary-Kate. <laughs> Yet, maybe if we had more time. Um, but she's great. She's done a sketch mm-hmm. with me before, and I knew she was game. And I've, I've talked to Aubrey a bunch, but she'd never done a sketch. And as you can imagine. Um, I loved them. She was really good. They were both great. They were both great. And this was an idea that we had for a while. Um, so check it out. It's bizarre and weird. I, I love seeing the comments being like, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> yeah, I don't like, know what this is, but yeah, I love it. That's a classic after hours response. What that's how you f- know you did what it. What the fuck was that? <laughs> just confusing young people around the world, yeah. one sketch at a time. So mm-hmm. uh, check that out. Um, more to come. One really special one that Sammy's excited stop, about. I think it's going to happen. But I'm not going to confirm don't it right now. Don't jinx it. Kind of jinx it, but I think it's gonna happen. Oh my gosh! Uh, oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god. <laughs> I gotta go! I gotta go! <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's it. Anything else you want to get off your your chest? No, I'm. Listen, I'm happy we're back. I'm happy we're here. We're here. This we're is... here, guys. Despite yeah. North Korea and riots <laughs> yeah. in the streets, the podcast continues. Happy, sad, confused is living on. <laughs> yeah, even the post-apocalypse, we're gonna still be broadcasting with whoever the survivors are. <laughs> yeah. You can count on that. That's a promise yeah. from me to the survivors. <laughs> Whatever celebrity makes it, just be them every week. Oh, that's dark. Yeah. Um, speaking of dark, he's played a bunch of dark characters. Let's listen to Mr. David Harbour. Uh, enjoy this conversation. Hopefully the first of many, or not first, but first long form conversation of many. And uh, next time we'll get him for a silly sketch. Uh, oh. Maybe in the Hellboy low rent costume. Now we're talking. David Harbour has just entered my office uh, through the raindrops of New York City. Thanks for coming, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Uh, yeah. We were just reminiscing about the insanity that is uh, San Diego Comic-Con. We saw each other there. Now we can just chill out and talk like human beings. Nice. Not like screaming people and running around. That comes 10 minutes into the podcast. Oh, does it? The <laughs> screaming audience <laughs> rushes in. People running up with uh, <laughs> little pictures and stuff and needing you to sign them yeah. and stuff. That's gonna, okay, yeah, good. that's how it works. I'm excited. But you're just welcoming more of that. I mean, when you return back to San Diego in a year or two, you're going to have like every little yeah, child and Hellboy makeup coming up I to know, you. I know. <laughs> I seem to be going deeper and deeper into it. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I got to say, like, you know, it's it's a... Uh, it's clearly a very complicated thing because it's so hectic and crazy for us being there. But, it, you know, it's nice to have a place where you can just totally geek out, you know, because I've been into that stuff sort of my whole life and I never really knew about it when I was a kid. I don't know if it was as big when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, well, I know. So you, well, this dovetails with a bunch of the stuff that I was want to talk to you okay. about because we're we're about the same age, um, um, and you, you you were born in New York City, as far as I know, or no? No, I was born in White Plains. Oh, you were, okay, born in White yeah. Plains. So you grew up in White Plains, Westchester. Uh, correct. Okay. Yeah, Westchester. Got it. Did he spend a lot of time in the city growing up? Or I was did. It? Yeah, when I was about. 13, 14, I think maybe freshman year of high school, I started coming down pretty religiously. Yeah. Um, on the train, my friends and I would come down and we'd uh, go to the museum of the Met Museum of Art because sure. we loved it. And then we would go try to get drunk at various places that would serve us back then right. when we were 14 years old. Aww, we'd like sweet. sneakily order Irish coffees and hope <laughs> that the waitress wouldn't notice. <laughs> We got Shirley yeah. Temple with a shot of vodka. Exactly. In there. <laughs> that, was, that was about our speed. We'd have an Irish coffee, so we'd be all hepped up and caffeinated and like slightly drunk. So 
It like a, a couple payoff. Baileys and keep it coming. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So and what, then, yeah. and then I actually came down when I was like 15 years old. I can't believe my parents let me do this because I was so into Shakespeare and into acting and into New York. Because the first thing I did, I came down and I saw Shakespeare in the park. I must have been in ninth grade, and I waited online all day. It was Christopher Walken and Raul Julia oh in gosh. Othello in the park, and we waited all day in line. Me and my girlfriend at the time, and I remember going and seeing Shakespeare in the park for the first time. And like that experience sort of changing my life yeah. and changing the direction of my life and being like, that is the goal. Like, I just want to be on that stage. And you, you've done Shakespeare in the Park, haven't you? I've done it, yeah, like three times now. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, is I, it still a little surreal? Uh, yes. Yes. You know, there was a moment in the play when uh, Chris Walken, who played Iago, uh, and in the play, everyone calls him Honest, Honest Iago. Mm -hmm. And it was like, Psychotic, psychotic. I mean, it's completely psychotic, but he was terrific. It's all in leather, and at one point, a squirrel like jumped up on stage, and he was in the middle of one of his monologues, <laughs> and he just turned to it and went bah, and like it ran away. And it was like, I was like, God, this is like incredible. Like in the moment, the I mean, it was just it blew me away, blew me away. So when I was about fifteen, I didn't, you know, Shakespeare in the Park wasn't really looking at me, but there was a. a a uh, little company in Brooklyn that did a play in Staten Island that did like half of Midsummer Night's Dream in Staten Island. I would go to, I would go down to Sunset Park, and this was like in the eighties. Yeah. Like I go down to Sunset Park, Brooklyn, like alone as like a fourteen-year-old little white boy, and like go rehearse until like midnight, come back home, and then do the play. And like, um, you know, I I don't know how my parents sort of let me do that. I was but gonna say, what did your parents make of this kind of early? Obsession. The early acting thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. They had mixed feelings about it. You know what I mean? Like, my mom my mom sort of loved it. And my dad was kind of embarrassed, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like, he um, he didn't like... Uh, he's sort of a Depression-era kid. And he didn't like attention being on him or attention being on his kids, sort of. And so, I think part of my reaction to doing it was this, you know, primal kid and his dad thing it's like sure. i want to be different than my dad i want to be like whatever that thing is that we're doing when we're like 14 years old so they had very mixed feelings about it but i remember it also being something that was not at all like a, a real life choice like never did it cross my mind or my parents mind that it was something you could actually do and pay your rent at and like actually survive at because i grew up in westchester so nobody there were no examples of actors or artists, visual artists or singers or it was all like real estate brokers, lawyers, doctors. So the idea was that I would take my theater skills into the courtroom and be a really good cross examiner yeah, or something. Great litigator, yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. Right out of law and order or something. But uh yeah, it didn't I didn't ever think it could translate. So they always sort of saw it as like a you know, funny thing. But there there was in me something early on when I was about sixteen where it was like sort of an in unalterable truth of like having to do this on yeah. some f real form. And what were you, uh, what were you into as a kid in terms of pop culture, whether it sounds like you were definitely a, a theater kid and fell in love um, with that aspect. But I would think um, TV film, like what, what was your jam back then? Yeah. I mean, you know, growing up as a kid, it's funny cause I'm on a show right. that is about this, but it's true that like my favorite movie was Raiders of the Lost Ark. I saw it. I guess, when did that come out? Like, Probably 81, I want to say. 80 or okay. 81. Yeah, yeah perfect. Yeah, because I was six or seven. Yeah. And um, it, uh, I saw it in the, in the theater 13 times because my grandmother liked air conditioning. <laughs> and so she would take me for the air conditioning because the movie theater probably Everybody had great, yeah. great air conditioning. <laughs> so she would sit there and sleep, and I would watch Raised the Lost Ark. So, 
you know, that was really like my first understanding of like cinema was these big Spielberg action kind of epics, you know, which I loved. And then as things went on, like that sort of translated into, for me, theater wise, it translated into me like Shakespeare, um, even the Greeks, even like Jacobeans and stuff, which I feel like has uh, that same sort of epicness to it. You sure. know what I mean? And, and I remember seeing in film, I remember seeing Kenneth Branagh's Henry V when I was in eighth grade, too. That came out of the Paris Theater, and a friend of mine took me down uh, very early on in the run at the Paris Theater in New York right next to the Plaza. Yep. And I saw Henry V with Kenneth Branagh, and that was another one where I was like, it was like Indiana Jones, but it just had all this language meat. Instead of saying, like, throw me the whip, it was like, you yeah. know... Once more into the breach, dear friends. I mean, well, it had all this like lush language. And, and it, it, I remember that too. I mean, I think I think I missed it in the theater, but I saw it on VHS. But like, it was like that soaring like Patrick Doyle score, right? Yeah. Because I, I, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about this. Like, um, I remember. I think I was. I skipped school to see Hamlet, his Hamlet, yes. which also played at the Paris Theater, yes. and it had like the intermission, and it was seventy millimeter, and it was just it, like it made it like sexy and cool for a film theater nerd like myself. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, exactly. He had that blonde dye job. Exactly. I remember the Danish <laughs> prince. <laughs> and every like actor known to man from like Charlton Heston and Robin Williams was in that. It was so cool. I know, it's true. Like Jack <laughs> Lemon played like yeah. Marcellus. Yeah. So he had like three lines. <laughs> yeah, literally like, every part. Jack Lemon. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. So we got sidetracked. So, um, so you were saying in terms of the film and TV. So, what about actors? Was was, was like Kenneth Branagh like a an early inspiration, or what were the ones that kind of like? Yeah, I mean, got obsessed yeah, with? Kenneth Branagh w was sort of an an early inspiration. Um, I'm trying to think of like actors when I was like real young. Like, did did you differentiate between? Because nowadays you can kind of. And like I respect and love like Harrison Ford, but he's kind of like movie star actor, exactly. As opposed to we Al did like, like exactly you know. <laughs> exactly we we did make those distinctions. I remember, um, you know, I, I remember yeah, I remember very much thinking that distinction in in my head. The, it's funny that the more I go along in my career, the more I the less I sort of see that distinction because mm -hmm. I see the work. But I remember being younger, especially in college. I think that was when it really takes off is like your height of late night conversations and arguing that Al Pacino is a real actor and Harrison Ford's just showing up. Exactly. <laughs> and like the opinions and just the confidence behind the opinions and like, and you know, also we were so like, I had kind of a group in college and we were all really into theater, really passionate about it and stuff. And we, you know, we were super jealous of all these people, too, and we would rage about, like, you know, people that I know now from New York. I remember, like, us being obsessed with Billy Crudup, mm -hmm. and uh, and he had just come out with, um, uh, I think, Jesus' Son mm -hmm. when I was in college, and us going to see it and, like, critiquing the shit out of his performance, <laughs> just being like, well, this moment, like, and now I think back, and I'm like, man, that guy's, first of all, that guy's really great, and then second of all, like, the consciousness that you have at that age and the opinions that you have at that age are so strong. But I do remember loving guys like Billy Crudup and loving guys like Ed Norton. Like, yeah. that was when I really started to see kind of my peer group. I mean, those guys are sort of the same age as me, maybe a little bit older, but... Um, and sort of really seeing what they were doing with acting. And I, I specifically remember seeing Ed Norton in that primal fear and thinking that... And in American History X and these movies and thinking that he was sort of doing a new thing. I actually sort of branded it as like a new thing. It was sort of a, he had all this visceralness, but he also had an intellect to him that yep. I 
I don't see in someone like, I mean, like Pacino, who I think is one of the greats. Like, he, he's very visceral. He's very intuitive. He's got all this stuff. But um, in terms of that sharp intellect, I feel like he, he you know, you don't really cast him as a, as a super uh, intellectual in right, a way. Right. And I it's thought that, base. like, Ed brought, like, both of these levels. I was, like, really impressed by that. Um, I remember, too, that, that all in that, like, in that run he had, like, he was in, like, three or four movies, like, that first year. And then, like, he did, like, the Woody Allen musical in that. And he was great in that, too. And it was like, yeah. oh, my God, the range of this guy. Yeah, and I remember I was, uh, I dated a girl who had been a child star. And this is funny in terms of those career moments. Yeah. And she actually auditioned for that movie. And she was in the audition room with Ed Norton. And Primal Fear hadn't come out. And she had somehow known about it through a casting director that he was like amazing. And I think this is true. Or maybe it had just come out or something. And people, and I remember her saying to him, like, you're going to be like a really big, you're going to be a really big actor. And he was like, no, no, it's like Richard Gere's movie. And like, I don't really even really. Right. And so it's just funny to think of those moments that we all have and where we're just doing our work and then, totally. you know, the culture experiences it as this zeitgeist and you're just like, well, I don't know. Like you're just <laughs> neurotic you're the as yeah, exactly. yeah. Just like the rest of us. Exactly. So what, so where were, were you, as a teenager, like were you, did you have your shit together? Did you feel like you were like, <laughs> like, like I know my path and like I got this figured out or were you kind of like a little rough around the edges? And... No, I was very rough around the edges. I mean, I still struggle with that. But I, uh, no, I was very, um, you know, I think the teenage years are hard for everyone, uh, but they were equally as hard for me. I mean, I, you know, I had a lot of angst and a lot of confusion, and uh, I think I poured that into, I, I poured that into certain things that were good for me and certain things that were bad for me. Right. Like, so I wound up drinking a lot, um, and acting out a lot around that drinking. It was, uh, I was never that into drugs, but it was really, I went pretty hard from high school on in terms of uh, drinking and stuff. And that was like, you know, it got me in a real dark place. And then, uh, but then also in terms of my neurosis and my, and my confusion about humanity, mm-hmm. I was able to like act. And so in that way, it was like very liberating. Like you could, I was always very confused by human beings because I think that we, um, I, ve- I see a lot of people interact and they claim that one thing is going on in their interaction, like they're being nice to each other. And then I don't view- see it that way. <laughs> or like, or they're mad at each other, but you can see that they're actually excited by each other. So, like I, I sort of, I don't believe people's conscious mind a lot or I don't believe their conscious intention when they tell you like, I didn't mean to do that, I didn't mean to do that. And you think like, so acting was a bridge for me into starting to understand human beings and to not treat them in a like to be sort of forgiving of them and to play a character who constantly goes around saying like I didn't mean to do that and believing that but knowing that they're constantly acting out in a certain way or behaving in a certain way to to do something so so that was a very refreshing way to like sort of exercise some of those demons of like you know being a sensitive kid who was kind of a misfit I was never you know I was never a popular kid I was never a sports kid I was uh, always like kind of buried in books or like video games or, um, you know, kind of nerding out. And, and I kind of dressed in all black. And like, you know, I was like one of those kids. I wasn't For the quite... record, you're dressed in black. <laughs> <laughs> Again, as I said, I continue to struggle with it. Yes, thank you. Um, 
but it, you know, it, yeah, I was I was sort of on the fringes because I I always felt a little bit like uh, Nick in Gatsby, mm-hmm. like outside the window looking in, and I so I always sort of viewed humanity and popular people, especially like as like what is it that they're doing and trying to understand and like. There's some kind of aloofness that I didn't have. I always had an intensity that I felt like was threatening and all these certain elements of my personality. So I was very interested in human being psychology and what they responded to, what they didn't respond to, what they were actually doing, what they said they were doing, all things like that. And so it really was able to be like liberating as an actor to go like play, like to, to reveal that and like speak it like was like, you know, it, it liberated me. And did, did getting a handle on like... <clears throat> vices coincide with kind of getting a handle on a career did that go hand in yes, hand yes uh, actually one to one and uh it's one of the reasons why i've stayed sober for so long yeah. is because i know i know a lot of people friends of mine too who kind of have careers and uh then they realize that they're drinking too much and so they stop and then they kind of worry about like whether or not they were better when they were drinking sort of you know what i mean yeah. and for me it was so clearly one to one i can't even tell you like i was i was drinking um, and I was doing plays. I had a theater company in New York. We were doing plays. We were writing plays. We were nonprofit, but I was practically homeless. Like, couldn't pay my rent. Um, and I was angry all the time. And I was, you know, your face. I was bloated. You, you know that yeah. alcohol bloat, yeah. right? That thing. And I stopped drinking. And I remember this was so funny. I, I had auditioned for a day play a role on As the World Turns the day before I stopped drinking. And I stopped drinking the next day. And then two weeks later, they called me and they wanted me to come do. And I remember I did have this moment with my a guy that I knew at the time. And I was like, do I, uh, do, do I, do I have to drink again? Like, did they want me because I drink? And he was like, <laughs> they relax. They special thing in my eyes. He was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was like, relax, just go do it. And then I did that. And ever since I stopped drinking, I've been able to, pr- I've been able to pay my rent with acting. Yeah. Like after that two weeks. And so I've kind of never looked back in that way. And it's been so clear to me like, oh, yeah, you're just a better actor when you're sober. And that's a rare thing, I think, for people to find. Because some people really associate acting with that chaos. I associate with a certain brand of chaos, but not... You find chaos in other aspects. Exactly. (laughs) There's so many... There's there's plenty of chaos in this body anyway. I don't need a little alcohol in there, too. (laughs) It's a garden of chaos, really. Pick whatever basil you want. (laughs) So, I mean, we're going to jump around a bit, but I'm curious, like, you know, I mean, certainly, arguably, this last year, professionally speaking, has probably been your most successful, most significant in your career. Absolutely. Okay. We can put that as a baseline. Um, But as you say, you've been you've been a working, jobbing, successful actor, especially in theater, but like even even film and TV. You're like you're like one of those like oh he's that guy. Yeah, I'm sure you've experienced that for a while. Oh, so much. Um, well, first on that, okay, so like you must still get that day to day, like literally. How, how do I know you? How, like, you know, um, uh, I do. I get it less now because of Stranger Things. Yeah, I that do helps get. A bit. They don't. They don't always know my name though. They're, they'll. They'll be like, "You're the guy from Stranger Things," <laughs> or or the other one is my first name is Stranger because they're just like Stranger Things. And you're like David Harbor. Um, but uh, but I do get. I used to get a lot. I used to get this is like people coming up to me all the time and going like, "Hey." And you're like, hey, what, hey, what's up? And they're like, yeah, we we went to high school together. And you're like, I went to high school in White Plains. Like, like, no, no, Ohio. We went to high school together. But it's just that they they have some sort of emotional connection to you because they've seen your face. Yeah. And maybe they've experienced an emotion. They've been like, oh, I hate that guy or I love that guy or whatever. 
And then they just associate that because they don't know you're not Denzel Washington. So they associate it as like, yeah, it's someone in my life that I feel something for. So therefore, I must know them. That seems like just like such constant awkwardness that I would hate. <laughs> like, I mean, I if you have like once or twice a day or even more or less, like that's, I'm not a, crazy that's, that's about a lo- lot of long conversations. And like you don't want to start to list your IMDb and like. That's always the worst is the one where they, they go like, what have you been in? And you're like, ah. <laughs> You watch a lot of porn. <laughs> what kind of porn? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a weird one. The other one that I had the other day, which was great, was uh, I had something delivered to my house, mm-hmm. like from a messenger or something, and uh, the guy came to the door and he had the clipboard. And he opened the door and he was like, "You are you," and I was like, "Yeah." There's no reaction. There's no proper reaction. I know. Uh, Al Pacino told me one we um, just dropped that name here on the desk he he and I have done a couple plays together but he said uh, he said people come up to him and he had one guy come up to him and go do you know who you are? <laughs> it's a great existential question like it's really give me a second yeah food for thought uh, I don't know so I guess my initial thought when I was bringing up this this amazing professional year you've had, like, are you, is this what you imagined it would be? Because I'm sure there have been a lot of nights spent thinking of, like, when the quote-unquote break happens. And you've had friends that have had the big break, the big TV series, the big film, whatever, and a career changes. doesn't necessarily correlate with a happier life. Yes. Have I mean, I just, I'm just curious, like, when it comes, and it comes after 40... Yes, um, I it, I, uh, I can I can categorically say I did not think this moment would come for me. Really? Oh yeah, and I was totally fine with that. Like, uh, it's funny that people associate this idea of making it with being on the cover of People right, right, magazine. Or yeah, yeah, like yeah. I I've been working as an actor and making like you know over a hundred thousand dollars a year for or, or for a long time, and that's like that's like a great life. Like you, you know, you pay your rent, you like hang out, you do plays. Do what you love. You work with the greatest actors on the planet, worked with Al Pacino twice, Broadway many times. Exactly. So it was a dream life already. Yeah. And so I just had sort of resigned myself, not resigned, but just been like, that'll, I'll just be this guy. I'll be a character actor. And and it's a great life. Uh, And also I've always had a thing where I thought that movie stars, and even my friends who are them, like even a guy like Billy Crudup or like, you know, uh, Ed Norton or whatever, sure. Oscar Isaac or what, like, I just feel like they're so damn good looking. Like, I really, no, I really do. So I have this, uh, it's some kind of uh, face neurosis where I just watch them on screen. And I'm just, God damn, you're so impossibly <laughs> so good looking. Great. You're so impossibly <laughs> good looking. There's no way you'd put this face as the front man. Like, there's just no way. And so... You know, I was kind of okay with that. So when we, uh, when when I I had a shot with this, like I did, um, you know, I, I didn't know. It was funny. Even when they picked me, I was like, "Wow, you guys must must want uh, a niche sort of show." I I really didn't know that it would be as big for for. I didn't I didn't know it would be a big show, and I didn't know it would be as big for me. Mm. Um, you thought so, it would be, the, the kids would be the yeah the story and yeah. And also, uh, and also, I don't know. I thought we'd get lost or overwhelmed. The acting wouldn't be seen as much as it is and appreciated, sure. which I, which I feel, you know, I'm so rarely proud of uh, say of stuff, and so I will be unabashedly proud. Like I think the work that me and others are 
all of us are doing in the show is really good because I think that there's, I don't really see the acting a lot. Right. And a lot of times, even when I watch good acting, like I remember having this problem a little bit. Again, extraordinary actor. It's probably my own jealousy. But like Robert Duvall. I remember watching Robert Duvall and stuff and, and a lot of times, like understanding that it was great or seeing the greatness of it but not really feeling anything. And there are other Duval performances where I do, like Great Santini, I feel like I just sure. feel it. But like, even The Godfather, and like certain things with Duval, I feel like he's showing you a little, a little much. Presentational, little, yeah, it's just yeah. a little bit like, look at how good I am. And yeah. you're like, oh, you, you, you are, but I'm, yeah. I'm missing the character. I'm just watching you. Sure. And, and I feel like there's something about this show that's so earnest, and the performances are so earnest, and they're so unflashy and unvain that I'm so proud of. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, but I'm psyched that people in this culture, because I do feel like acting has changed in this culture with the result of television and stuff. Like, I feel like a lot of acting now has become like standing there and saying lines, and and uh, and I feel like people people's template for acting may be changing to a certain degree too. But the fact that what we're doing in that show is very much appreciative, yeah. is uh, very affirming to like what I believe about acting, what I believe about like good acting and so I was like really psyched about that can we talk a little bit about Winona yeah hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> so Winona, I, know, I know from reading uh, uh, about your relationship and, and just your opinion of her like again we're about the same age I grew up in love with Winona yes. <laughs> like literally in love with Winona and, and, and I've gotten to know her actually too in recent years she's been on the podcast oh she I've has many, many oh times. cool oh wow I um, didn't know she'd been on the podcast oh yeah yeah I yeah, gotta yeah. listen to oh, that oh yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah it, it, it ends with it's <laughs> my, my favorite ending of any podcast ever because as you know she's just kind of like on her own wavelength in her own yeah. world and I mean that in, yeah. in a compliment she's yeah. adorable um, but like literally at the end of the podcast I'm like you know you know, uh, thanks again. Always good to see you. And thanks for being on my podcast. And she just goes as sweetly as possible. Was this a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, there are no cameras in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's microphones. Oh, it's amazing. Um, but give her my best. She's uh, wonderful. <laughs> well, I will. But, um, but just give me a sense. I mean, because you've talked about sort of the, the, the inherent friction of those characters yes. and, and yes. how that's sometimes translated on set. Was that is that something that. I guess just how did that manifest or without, you know, as much as you're comfortable talking about it? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that to a certain degree, uh, if you want, uh, this is something that's so complicated, but I do feel like if you want something to resonate, you got to bleed a little bit. Like, and I, I uh, you know, I've heard stories of like, you know, nonsense that actors do. Uh, in in the method or whatever, sure. where they're, you know, I've heard those Jared Leto mail. I was gonna say, whatever, did you get the, did you get the rat on Suicide I did, Squad? I didn't have a big enough part, uh, <laughs> but uh, I wasn't Will He's Smith. Like, the I, can, I can only afford six dead pigs. <laughs> exactly, Harvard's just not gonna get one. <laughs> not gonna make the cut. Um, no, but that type of nonsense. Or I've even heard some stuff around, like uh, you know, Danny Day Lewis, which I have complicated feelings about, but. I will say that uh, I do think acting when at its best is very personal. And so if you're not personally affected, mm. the character won't resonate. The character will resonate as you acting. But if, if David Harbour gets personally offended, it will resonate through the character of Jim Hopper much more deeply than if I just play getting affected, right? So... I do find that when I get into situations uh, where I'm acting now, because I care about the audience's response more than my own, whether or not people like me, I tend to be a little subconsciously deviant in terms of setting up situations that I feel like will resonate uh, payoffs. 
Um, and Winona is very game for that. Whether she like consciously knows it or not, she's very game to play those things. So like, is this stuff before the you call action? This is stuff in terms of like you both get on set and you know there's gonna there's tension in that scene, and you're consciously in your mind being like, I'm gonna be a little rude or aloof or weird or around her and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's more just like as the day goes on, allowing your instrument to resonate. So. There's a lot of times where something will come up in a scene or you'll get frustrated, right? And and I'll say to myself as a human being, I'll go like, okay, you're frustrated, relax, don't, you know, go back to your chair, have a coffee. Bowl. Right. And what I do is I allow myself the freedom to act out. I allow myself the freedom to say what I wouldn't normally say, to actually engage mm -hmm. in a way that may be... The silence, the, the demon that we all put at bay... <laughs> 23 yeah, hours a we, day. <laughs> we let it out, right? Yeah. And and we uh, and I did find that Winona is so um, she's such a pro in like what I consider what I consider like beyond pro, and I think it's because she grew up in it, and she does have a conscious process, but she's also just so intuitive mm -hmm. that like she's so personal, and she's willing to like she's just willing to like she does it too. I don't know if she'd admit to doing it, but I see her do it. Like she does it too. She's always thinking about. Um, the scene above herself, above us, above, and I am too. And I, so we would throw down, you know, and in those moments when you see, you know, but also in that way, you can actually fall in love with someone mm. because you can't really fall in love with someone if you don't fight with them, if you don't show them your underbelly of your own weakness and your own stupidity, because then they see you and then they're able to love you and you're able to love back because you're like, holy shit, you saw me. And you still are hanging out with me. Like, right. that's beautiful. Or, like, there's so much more engagement in that way. And I felt like she was such a, she's such an intuitive pro in that way. Like, she really is just a, an acting animal. And so often you meet people who have, who have all kinds of agendas in acting. Like, they want to, like, be popular or they want to go to the party or they want to look good or they want to just be a good actor and be known as a good actor or they want they have so many agendas sure. like m a myriad of agendas and with Winona I feel like <laughs> it's, it's almost like childlikely agenda list and it's just like play the character and she just really is in it in it and I was like all right I'm gonna do it too and like we're gonna fight on set and we're gonna like and also we're gonna fall in love on set I mean as much as I say personal, like there were those days where we just both couldn't stand each other. And we're like, like, okay, roll camera. Just roll it. We'll do it. And then there were those days where I would have late night conversations with her. I'd be at the chairs and I would be like, I am in love with this woman. Like I'm falling in love. My heart is like open. So it is a head trip like to be an actor. But um, she's, uh, I was so grateful to work with her. I was so grateful for what she brought because I couldn't have given my performance without her. And and it was funny because we even talked, you know, at one point for all of us, there's another actor in the mix, right? That like this producer wants some other actor. Right. And, you know, you know some of these people and you're like, wow, the particular alchemy of me and Winona is so special that I don't, um, I, I don't, you know, again, the show might have been, but when I, when I hear who they want for me or who they want for her, it's like I don't know that they, I don't know that it would have been the same show. I think there's something about our messiness as mm. people and as actors that is so, 
rare and fun and so i'm super grateful so do you know the other actors that were that they wanted <laughs> i mean i i have some inkling i occasionally will guess because it's just my own like sort of thing is i'll guess i know there was you know because that's the thing about all these things like there'll be lists or there'll be you know things like that so i know uh, I know some stuff, <laughs> okay, but I can't. Maybe. I can't okay, talk about enough, any of that. Well, but I, I'm curious more generally. Like, but I know we were very near the top. I'll say that. Okay, I'll, I'll say that. Okay, okay. Well, more generally, I'm curious. Like, were there like you know? I think of somebody like you know, pointing to my Michael Shannon uh -huh. poster. Like, I could imagine you guys were up for similar roles over the years. You're same yeah. age. You have the same kind. There's some. There's some similarities. I could see that casting directors would say. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yes. That's very fair to say. <laughs> okay. That's very fair to say. There's a bunch of those guys, though. You know, it's like uh, Peter Sarsgaard mm. is another one. Sure. Um, you know, there's a bunch of guys who who have sort of a presence in film as that guy. They're not huge names in yeah. the sense of like a Jake Gyllenhaal. They're not. They're not like sort of marquee idols, but they're guys who work a lot. You know, I think like Sarsgaard and Shannon sort of kind of have bigger names or even like Corey Stoll or like yep. there are these guys who like you know they're known as like good solid well there's a presence and a delivery like a solid like you, you know you were gonna get the fucking job done by any of the ones you yeah. mentioned or your, yourself and there's a presence and a power that each of them kind of can deliver yeah yeah I agree and it's funny like you do have these moments where you know there's a bunch of us guys who I, I call us like four to six like there's a call sheet in a film right, right? and right. the call sheet always has number one right. and it's always like Liam Neeson Denzel Washington whatever and then there's number two is always the leading lady it's like you know Jennifer Lawrence right? sure. and then three is usually the villain which might be us sometimes sure. but four to five are like the dudes who are like <laughs> the dudes who show up and are the best friends or the like right. whatever or the guys give some who color are, to the palette gives a little background yeah, and, and they're like the supporting like yeah. strong company and I do feel like I've had a presence in that way in film for a long time yeah where it's like you get to a certain place and you're like oh I'll always sort of be able to you know and directors start to get to know you and they're like oh, I just want to put you in here blah, blah. and then so this is a transition point for me where I feel like and especially with going to Hellboy now like. I do feel like I kind of want to try being number one. Is that going to be the, your first time in a film being number, number one? one? Um, yes. I did an indie where I was number one, okay. but a very small indie. So what did you work, because as you say, you've worked in many, particularly in thinking about the films, with like movie stars, Liam Neeson and yeah. Denzel. Um, was there one experience where you learned a bunch in terms of like how you would want to emulate them in terms of like that responsibility of being number one on the call sheet. Like, wow. I think there is a responsibility off camera and then there's a responsibility on camera. I think that the responsibility on camera is more important than the responsibility off camera in a weird way. Mm. Um, I did learn so much from Denzel in equalizer. I felt like I learned, I feel like I brought some of that into hopper as well, but just about, all right. Um, there's something about the hero's journey, which is a classic film trope, right? Mm -hmm. The hero starts out in a place where, you know, he's kind of whatever, and he does, he thinks he's okay, and then he, he has to, he denies going on a journey, then he ultimately has to go on the journey, and then he winds up um, where, where he's at, where he didn't even realize 
that going on the journey was what he needed to do. Right. Okay. Got it. Or she. Um, and so the, the, um, the classic, like, I remember watching, and I didn't watch the whole movie, but I remember watching um, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Mm-hmm. And I remember doing, seeing Ben Stiller do something that I felt like was a trap uh, that he sort of fell into as a performer. Um, I, he, he played Walter Mitty at the beginning of the movie as, uh, and I didn't even know this until I watched Denzel and Equalizer, but he played him as kind of a nebbishy, nerdy guy who couldn't get the girl and like blah, blah, blah. And you, you kind of saw it and felt it. And then he denies the journey, and then he goes on the journey, and he, and he winds up blah, blah. But you, you sort of felt... Um, what I felt watching that performance was I felt him uh, knowing that the character was kind of nerdy and off and had to go on a journey, right? And when I watched Equalizer, when I watched what Denzel was doing, at the beginning of the movie, he's obsessed with time, and he's kind of got a life where he's kind of anal retentive right. around like certain things. He's at the things. diner, and he's reading, yeah, and, and he's like organizing stuff. Yeah, yeah. stuff, and he's also always timing stuff and yeah. everything. And But Denzel plays it, like there's nothing wrong with his life and like but genuinely well, it's again, back to what you were saying about sort of like getting lost in your own like narrative and not having kind of like that that outside viewpoint of sort of like yeah this is what i am this is what i do i didn't hurt that person i didn't mean to hurt that person this is just i'm just behaving i'm just doing yes. what i do yes i'm not and judging myself yes and but as a as a trajectory what's amazing about it is he, do, he doesn't think he's in a bad place. Right. And then ultimately he goes on this journey and then at the end, and it's just, you know, it's, it's not a complicated, it's not Shakespeare, but he does become the equalizer. Sure. At the end. <laughs> and he goes on Craigslist and he's helping people on Craigslist, yeah. right? And in that beat, and maybe I'm reading too much, but I actually think he's a very sophisticated actor, but he, in that beat, when you watch him on Craigslist, you're like, oh my God. Like you as an audience are like, oh my God, that's what he needed. Mm. We didn't even know he needed that in the beginning. Like, we went on the journey with him. Right. Because we didn't know that he wasn't okay. Right. We thought he was okay. And then when he got there at the end, we were like, oh, oh, that guy, had he not gone on that journey, like, he wouldn't become an eagle, he wouldn't have had meaning in his life, right? right? And that type of surprise and trust in your audience and trust in your storytelling, where you're not showing them a guy who has to go on a journey. You're just showing them a guy. And then you're letting them retroactively realize that he had to go on the journey was something that we, was something that we explored. I think it happens in Stranger Things, too, uh, uh, with Hopper. Yeah. Like, I think, even though you do kind of think he's a douche in the beginning, but, like, he, you don't really know that he, he seems like he's coffee and gone blaze, he's, like, having a good time, blah, blah, blah. And you don't really know until he saves Will that you're like, oh, that dude needed to do that. Like, right. That dude needed to wake up. Um... And so that's something that, like, from a leading male actor point of view, and he does it very subtly, is, like, to make sure that your character, or at least whatever psychodynamics are going on underneath, which I feel like are present in all of us, right? Which is, like, we need approval, or we need, or we're missing something, or we're seeking something, or whatever. Those psychodynamics going on, make sure that the character themselves are not aware of those psychodynamics. You as the actor can be aware, but le- but the character is not aware, and the character, in fact, is actively unaware that mm-hmm. there's anything wrong, and that leads to a really satisfying journey. And I I really saw that in Denzel, and more than any other sort of leading man, like all the leading men I've worked with have specific things that they do well, like like Al does a certain moment to moment thing that mm-hmm. I've never seen anyone do, 
But in terms of the conscious construction of that, uh, Denzel, I think, um, does that better than anybody. And it's funny because I talked to him at the premiere of that, and I was like, <laughs> I'm such a geek. I'm like the, I'm like the Chris Farley show. You remember the Chris sure, Farley show? Of course. Show? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember that time yeah. when you did that? Thing? Yeah. So I, I was, I went up to him at the premiere, and I was like. You're so good in this movie, man. And it's like it's like an okay movie, but you're so good in this right. movie. He's like, I am, I am. I was like, Yeah. Have you seen? <laughs> he was like, That's all a little bit of it. <laughs> I was the like, coolest man on the planet. I was like, Wow, man. So I don't even know if it's just wildly in- intuitive or if he consciously knows what he's doing. But I learned so much about structuring a leading performance from that. What are you? What is the prep for something like? Hellboy, which I imagine is like, uh, there's physical stuff, obviously. Yeah. Um, but what are you like? What are you working on right now in the month or two before you start doing Hellboy? Um, it, a lot of it is, uh, a lot of it always when it's good is very personal work, and it comes down to like, because there is. I mean, I've been doing training, and not that I'll, I will have a, a thing. It's like a monster suit, basically. Right. But I need to get strong for and to be agile. So I've gotten a lot stronger, a lot more agile for the stunts and things like that. That's part of the training. But to me, the hardest work is there's a play um, called Red about Mark Rothko. And, yeah. Uh, and there's like it's like him and a, an assistant of his. Right. And there's the most beautiful moment in the play, and I relate to this so much as an actor. And I even saw on Chappelle's special. Uh, is Rothko sitting in front of a blank canvas, staring at it. And the assistant is like, and there's a big long beat, and the assistant goes, when are you gonna start painting? And he goes, I am painting. Right, And right, like, right, right. so that's the, <laughs> the thing The work about. has begun, the work. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, and Chappelle talked about it in his recent special where he was like, he called it the, the Dave Stare or something. Mm-hmm. And like, he's just out on a park bench, just like staring. And like, <laughs> and you realize that this is the gestation of, for those guys, it's jokes. For Rothko, it's the painting. And for me, it's like the gestation of hopefully the layers of character that you can reveal. And you know, like physically, this guy's different from me. So there's some physical work that I have to do. Um, and But a lot of it is coming up with I mean, and certainly structural elements in terms of how the script breaks down. Yeah. So the character has to go from here to here to here. And within these scenes, this happens. That's all work, too. But in general, it's more about, um, like, a way of being that they are in private and a way of being that they are in public. And, uh, and the, the constructing of that psyche. Like, he thinks differently than me, right? So everything that I process the world in has to change. Right. And and the way to do that is to is a very complicated specific way that I do it, and it's hard, <laughs> like because it's like you just kind of want to show up and you know just do it like fun, and yeah. you do need to that element has to be an element of it too, because once you get on set, like I heard Paul Servino talk about acting being like sculpture, like he said my preparation is exhaustive and my execution is lightning fast. Right. So when you're on set, none of this work should be apparent, none of it should even seem blah blah. But right now, it's a lot of like sitting alone, relaxing my body, uh, coming up with personal relationships, events, objects, uh, sensations, ways of being that can make this character rich and unique, different than me, um, and really figuring out like how to play him so that he's affecting, heartwarming, scary. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's. 
it's in, infinitely complex. I could use another year and a half, and, well, then, <laughs> and then I'll be ready. And, and having seen what Ron Perlman did quite well yeah. in those two films, yeah. is there, like, do you have to throw out every bag of trick that, that he used, or can you, I mean, you know, you want to make it your own. You yeah. want to be loyal to what Mike Mignola created. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be inherent similarities. Right. So is that a unique and odd challenge to kind of like... Yes. <laughs> it's fair enough. It's unique and odd because I do find that I, uh, you know, you sort of have a standard, right? And there are things that I'm going to do that are different than that. It's it maintains the same like Hellboy is the same uh, character from the comics and from what Ron did. Like there are certain things that are the same thing, but um, um, but I I do think that I don't know. There's there's a diff there's a different approach because I, I sort of highlight different things I think than Ron does. Ron sort of um, embraces this uh, machismo in himself and in Hellboy that kind of is this like thing, and I I really like it. I think it's super fun. I think it's a super fun performance. I don't um, I think Hellboy uh, has a certain psychodynamic where occasionally he has to prove that he's the lion and has to roar, but I and I think he struggles with his own masculinity, but I, I don't think he, um, I don't think he needs that as much as maybe those other movies did. Like gotcha. I think he's got a, I have a bit of a different take on, on, uh, on, on his capability or his slickness. Gotcha. I sort of think that for me, he's a little less uh, skilled at okay. constructing that persona. And is this, just for clarification, is this? You know, this is obviously Neil Marshall's own thing. This yeah. is your own thing. It's not going to have continuity with those other two films, uh, per no. se. No. Like, is it setting, like, does it, like, kind of, do you have to do the business of kind of, like, telling who Hellboy, I would imagine to a certain extent you do, who Hellboy is, how he came to be, and that kind of a thing? Uh, or are you just kind of, like, entering we, into there, the world? There is some, there is some thing of that, but it's not really an origin story movie. Got it. Like, we kind of pick up the movie, like, you're in it. Yeah, like we're running and gunning, like nice. we're the and we do have a little bit of stuff where we show stuff, but it really is a story, and you just drop in with this guy, and so in a way, like, but in a way, I feel like that's kind of what Indiana Jones was, right? Like totally. you start with him stealing the idol, but also you do go back to the university and you understand he's an archaeologist and you understand these things, but like this is just a guy who goes and steals idols and fights Nazis <laughs> and goes take, wants to steal the Ark of the Covenant. Right. But you're never like, you know, you never go back There's and look at him preamble. as a kid yeah, and yeah. you're like, how did he become Indiana Jones? It's like, no, it's just, we accept that this is Indiana Jones. And I think that's kind of what our story does too, is we accept that there's this half demon guy running around the world like being a paranormal investigator <laughs> and solving crimes and also, you know, dealing with his own issues at the same time and... You get to fight another childhood crush of mine, Mila Jovovich. Yeah, right. It'd be fun. I know, I know. Um, but there, there was talk. The fifth element herself. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. She Lilu. was. Hold on. Can we can yeah. talk about that for Please. a second? Yeah. She was. She was the love. fifth element. She, but love was the fifth element, correct? Yes. It's been and a bit. So it was yes. like there was like sand and water Luke and Luke Perry in the desert and and, uh, and there was. <laughs> And then she, it was love, but she was love. I believe that Basically, is true. Basically, like, Lilo was the representation of love. That sounds right. In have that seen, orange have, wig and that... Have you seen Valerian yet? Have you seen the new Luc Besson? No. It's pretty have good. You? Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's worth checking out. Okay. 
Um, what, how close did the cable thing come to happening? There was talk that you were going to do cable at one point. There was. There was. Um, I, uh, I did test for it. Um, and, you know... Uh, one of those things. It's, yeah, it's one of those things. I don't know how much I can say okay. about it. It was, um, it was definitely, you know, they were very... Um, you know, I know Ryan and I... I know those guys a little bit and so th there was a lot of interest uh, I don't I don't feel I feel like it all sort of worked out in the end though because I think that Josh will be great and great for that thing and I feel like the Hellboy thing is almost writer for me because mm. it's a, a little weirder and it's a little less um, I don't know it's a little more indie it's a little it's a little I feel like we can I feel like we can do something special and I might have more of a more of a sort of creative hand in it yeah a bit. more of a sort of and and i kind of like that and even if you know i feel like deadpool's a, the, the great thing about deadpool is like it's such a proven thing it's like you kind of know you're going to make a movie that people are going to see and it's going to make sure. a billion dollars but and like hellboy who you know three people might come and see it we don't know <laughs> but um but i do I, I do kind of like that i've always always in my career when things have come up that have been the sure thing mm. and things have come up that have been like I don't know about this. Like Stranger Things was very much like that too. Where right. we were like, you know, they they were like, because I had friends who were doing, you know, I had friends who were doing the big shows that were going to hit, which right. is like, you know, like shows that didn't really work, like Vinyl HBO or think, you know, things that were like gold standard. Like we got Scorsese, we got blah, 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 like this is Can't a no mail. brainer. Yeah, exactly. And this was like two kids in North Carolina who kind of wrote. No one had script. heard of the Duffer Brothers. And, and yeah, also, totally. and even like producers that I had talked to who had worked at Warner Brothers because they had had a movie that had been shelved there. And producers were like, yeah, Duffer Brothers are not so good. And I was like, oh, okay. So I took a risk with these guys because I believed in them. And uh, it really paid off yeah. in a way that was... And that's the other William Goldman thing, right? Which is like, nobody, nobody knows, knows anything. anything. <laughs> like, they really don't know anything. So it's like, look, you make a good movie and that's all, or you make a bad movie. But but going in, you, you never really know. So my hope is just that we, is, is just that like, we work really hard and we make something really special with this, because I want that. So has, it, has anybody, you know, in this post, like, amazing new, you know, first year of the rest of your life mm -hmm. um, given particularly great advice in terms of like you know you talk about nobody knowing anything and just sort of trusting your gut and going with the weird and, and stuff that feels right for you I mean like what you know what do you do what do you do with the with the, the, the power the collateral the whatever you've kind of garnered in the last year because again you know I have this conversation with many actors that come in here it's like always that you know the, the thing that's almost more complicated than not having any choice is having choice <laughs> that's suddenly, very true suddenly you actually have to like guide your own career before you can kind of like yeah I'll take whatever whatever yeah, comes to me I'm exactly I'll make the best of it and it's funny I uh, I don't I've tried to ask for some advice and I've gotten I feel like the wrong advice so I uh, <laughs> you know there's there's a little bit of something too of an investment in terms of people that in the industry right like and as you say, like, this is the funny thing about the transition that I'm making, if I'm making it. Because, look, let's face it, like, Hellboy could be a disaster, and uh, I could just, like, burn burn out. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't have any, but all I'm saying is, it, it is sort of a transition for me to be number one on the call sheet, right? And so a lot of the people in the industry that I know and that are friends with are directors or writers or uh, fellow actors or producers that are know me as number five on the call sheet. 
right? Who's the guy who shows up in your movie and who's great in those three scenes mm -hmm. and then like, but doesn't, isn't Liam Neeson. Right. We're not gonna, you know, he's, he's the guy who shows up and is great. And so I, what I found in terms of the advice, this is a, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I have found that some of the professional advice that I've been given has come, I think, with a certain caveat attached, which is like, don't go from not being that guy in our movies anymore. Like, we want that guy in our movies. And so when you see someone at 40 make this transition to be like, no, I kind of want to try to be Liam Neeson here for a sec, and let's see how that works. Uh, they, there's, I think, a bit of a threat in terms of... Uh, First of all, they're going to have to pay you more. They're going yeah. to have to uh, not be able to just have you show up in their things as this thing. And so I think that it's any sort of movement in society in that way, I think, is threatening to the machine, yeah. to the cog machine. So I have had very close friends who are super excited. And then I have had advice that is like, wait a minute, like, don't do this. And then as I start rolling with it, they get they start to get on board and excited but the initial response to a lot of change like that is like don't rock the boat just yeah and and uh yeah yeah it's weird you're gonna stay in new york <laughs> I, I i am yeah yeah i am yeah i can't i love new york so much yeah uh i've tried to live in la but i can't but the great thing about sort of having a good moment in your career is that you don't have to be like I think the only reason why you have to be in LA is when you're not having oh yeah a great now more than ever you can actually you can make it work yeah you guys can send me scripts and then we can talk about them <laughs> as opposed to me having to go to Fox and yeah you know yeah it's going out for every pilot season etc yeah um well I, I'm thrilled that we've gotten to know each other a little bit the last uh, month or so between San Diego comic-con and this uh, we haven't even mentioned congratulations again on the Emmy nomination Thank you. well Thanks. deserved Thanks, for man. stranger things uh, I hope you get a chance to get up on stage and deliver another uh, fun exciting crazy moment like I, the sags I, I have a crazy idea oh yeah <laughs> wait a sec any hint um, it's it's uh, it's much more personal okay but um, but I think that it's something that in in I'd like to say as an artist and I'd like to say to uh, people you know I Absolutely. it's funny people are so uh, people have such different feelings about getting up on stage some people want it to be very spontaneous some people sure. want it to be like they feel shy or embarrassed or just thank you and I'm such a ham and I want to construct it and I want it to be really what I want to say so I definitely uh, yeah I, I definitely and I was so thrilled to be able to say that at the SAG it was Awards. a great I moment was so thrilled that yeah. I that it sort of is exciting to me. And it's kind of the only reason why I'd like to like win. <laughs> like, I'd actually be totally okay if John Lithgow accepted the award and said he'd like to cede his time to David Harbour. That would be totally fine. <laughs> a win-win for everybody. Well, regardless, if, if you get up on stage or not, you're welcome to come back here and deliver oh, the speech that would have been. Oh, thank you. All right. That's good. Maybe I'll do that. If you give me like a fake, I was if say, I can I'll hold up one of the superheroes here or something. I'll construct a, a homemade a award. With a pong ball in his hand or something. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, yeah, just as meaningful as the actual <laughs> Emmy. Uh, best of luck at the Emmys, man. Thanks, and uh, man. hopefully we'll talk soon. Congratulations. Great. And we'll see you on Stranger Things Season 2 very yes. soon. Yeah, very soon. Thanks, man. Cool, thank you. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>